Hey everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk Digital with myself, Audrey Naidu. As we wind down the year, this is our last and final mashup for this year. And I think we all need a break from 2020. What a year. A big massive shout out to all you listeners who have been on this journey with us from the beginning. You guys have been amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It has been a tremendous year and I'm definitely looking forward to taking some time off. We have come out stronger, wiser and more connected to each other. I am humbled and truly grateful to be a part of this. The topic up for discussion is the value of influencer marketing to brands. Is it worth the investment? Hello, Peter, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Audrey. Yeah, thanks for the invite and, and happy to be here. Yeah. And there's three things that really stood out for me from what you said is one is trust, two is being authentic, and three is having the credibility to reach your audience, but also to connect with them. Today, we're going to go into the discussion of myth-busting because there's, there's been a lot of... Uh, bad perceptions around influencer marketing and maybe we can discuss why this has resulted in that um, some of the things that I have picked up um, from from what has caused this is um, the, the risk that brand has to take because they divorced from that process um, secondly maybe it is them using their agencies manage that that whole process of influencer program and thirdly it's around fraud because uh, there's a perception that if you have a high following for example on Instagram that you've now bought those audiences in a different way and stuff so do you want to tap into some of these um, things that have gone wrong and historically that has resulted in this bad perception yeah, so, so so let's work back. Let's start with this fraud side. Um, it's true, but then again, if you if you util if you embark on influencer marketing today, without using the right technology, then it then then you open the risk. So it's like in any form of media investment, you need to take due care. And for me, there's technology where I can go and we actually in one of our platforms. Every half an hour we do audience analytics and that half an hour gets compared to the previous half an hour and the previous half an hour. And AI does all of this and if it shoots up, unless you've become Miss, Miss South Africa or something like that, you get investigated. And it, for instance, I can see where your audience are, what their age groups are. And, and, and that's just the backend because if you've got backend data from the platforms like Facebook and Instagram, which they allowed you to have, then you can detect fraud quite easily. And if we detect fraud in our systems, we mark down those influencers and we would never put them forward. And you often get contacted by influencers saying to yourself, but why don't you ever pick me for brand engagement? And then we have a quick, quick look at a profile and we say, well, you're sitting with 40% of your audience sits in India. So at some stage you spend some dollars to grow an audience, which you thought was important. Now a good influencer, it's not about the size of the audience, it's the quality of that audience that makes you viable and attractive for brands to collaborate with you. And you might not know, but we've got access to all that information. So for me, if you're not using the technology that's available, you are at risk to come short. Um, second one is, uh, was around, uh, who do you partner with? It's a specialist game. It's not something 
that you can just um, do it on the side. So if you look at a traditional influencer business, you probably will have access to good technology and, and, and that needs to be checked out, you know, how good is your technology and have you got case studies around it, how it works. And then secondly, have you got experience in it? Have you ever collaborated with influencers? Because we've got, a, we've got a full team of people that's just doing collaboration and you would think, okay, but anyone can collaborate with an influencer. It doesn't work like that. Most of collaboration takes place at night. So if you're working office hours, there's delays in, in getting to the end, end product that you're after. And so, so, so infrastructure is important in terms of manpower. And then the first one was credibility. And I think it almost come back to the third one is that how credible are these influencers that I'm working with? Am I using someone that's being used every month? Or am, am I looking in a database for someone that's very topical and might not have the biggest following? Because the problem is a lot of the campaigns I see coming in is people call out names as a first step. And that's, that should not be the first step. You should first understand what, what audience am I after? Because when you're using big influencers, they just a conduit for your message. So it's really who you want to reach should be the first question. And then what message do I want to take out? And then you should come into a system and say, let AI find myself the best influences. Yeah, so the interesting thing is, imagine if you are having a physical event, right? And uh, you are standing backstage or at some vantage point, right? And you are able to see how everybody was moving around the event. like. Absolutely. And you know, that was, customers are also looking to brands to, and make a stand. You know, we look at the likes of Nike, um, Adidas, um, you, know, who, you know, the sports brands have traditionally taken stands on uh, gender-based violence, LBGT communities. Um, so, you know, it's an opportunity, I think, you know, for you know, with brands to, to be answerable to their customers, to, to make a stand when politicians perhaps are not or where um, you know, um, you know, celebrities are also perhaps not doing the job of taking the stand that customers expect of them. It really is an opportunity for brands to, to have a social statement, um, be a positive force in their community um, and drive um, and build a community around a standpoint or a statement um, that can draw people together behind a common force. So you would encourage brands to lean in and be part of those conversations? Absolutely. Okay. Today we are firing it up. Darren, I noticed that you and Doug share some history together. Both of you were at Stir Kinico and now at Nando's. Is this sheer coincidence? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I mean, it's the natural progression, you know, from movies to chicken in terms of your career. Uh, so, you know, there's coincidence in that. But um, yeah, I've been, I've been very, very privileged to work uh, with Doug for uh, about a decade um, as we've uh, navigated the, uh, the nuances of South Africa together. But um, yeah, I, th it, uh, I think it's, it's rare to find a... I suppose a team combination where uh, there's a level of trust and you just kind of know what uh, what, what the different skill sets are uh, and, and when it works, it works. And if it doesn't meet those criteria, then we just don't say it. And I think what a lot of brands get wrong is they they are 
more interest, I suppose, in, in appearing formal and professional than they are in appearing human. And when it comes to conversations online in particular, and there was actually a really nice article published about us a, a couple of days ago without any uh, bribery or solicitation from us, uh, around the way in which you know Darren and his team in particular do community management online, which is, you know, it's not that the customer is always right, but the customer is always human. Yeah, 2020 is, uh, has been the biggest curveball as, uh, as far as anyone could have, uh, could have imagined. Defining brand safety has been more or less a challenge because everybody has a different, different concept for it. Um, at Group M, how we define it is, um, you know, uh, taking care and mitigating all different kinds of risk. Um, and I mentioned uh, those three. So. Uh, reputational risk, which is where the most perceived risk uh, there is. So it's contextual brand safety, right? It's your it's your adjacency to different kinds of content, etc. Uh, and, and then there is the financial risk, which is your ability. Are you actually wasting money on ads that uh, that couldn't be seen, or uh, are you actually, as a brand, giving money away to to fraudsters because you're not taking some mitigation tactics? And the last one is the it's so-called legal risk, which is mostly about the, the GDPR in Europe, uh, uh, which is actually uh, ensuring that you know you process the personal data of our users in an in a not only a legal way but also ethical. So all of this is for us group and brand safety. But I know that most of the people actually focus on the contextual brand safety, being able to say yes, I invest in quality content, but quality content actually does deliver better results for my brand. And for that, I think we we need more case studies that prove that quality does effectiveness and efficiencies. Yeah, I would certainly like to see more case studies come out in the industry, especially from a South African local context. Let's give a humongous welcome to Brett St. Clair. How's it, Brett? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Audrey. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I'm so impressed with what you've been doing, and I'm pretty privileged to be on your show, so thank you. Most of the time, I'm a technologist. I look at the cool, funky technology, and I really love this world of digital transformation because it happens in all areas of a business. And what we're really seeing is is business trying to automate as much of the engagement from a, a work point of view as well as the engagement with a customer. Um, that's probably the best way to distill it down. And in order to do that, you need to understand the data that you're working with, whether it's um, understanding the customer data and how you action off the back of that customer data or uh, understanding the, the the data that you need to work internally to create the products and create the services to provide to your customer. Um, so we saw this gap in the market because what was happening is there were lots of people doing AI and I use inverted commas here. And what I mean by that is they're really focused on machine learning. So people were saying, as a little consultancy going to businesses saying, listen, I can solve a problem for you using machine learning, please give me some data. And they would spend six months trying to figure this out. Very clever people, generally statisticians who understand the world of data science. Um, and there are lots of them. Everyone wants to become a data scientist. And the gap we saw in the market was taking that model that they'd figured out and solved the problem 
and actually moving it into a world where it could be productionized. What I mean by productionized is make it work. Make it work for your customer every day. Uh, Google's very good at productionizing those algorithms. So is Facebook, so is Amazon. It could be a recommendation engine, you know, in Amazon where you buy something and it says, we think you would like this too, and you buy more. <laughs> that is an algorithm that's been put into production. It's working very well and it's continuously learning. Um, but the rest of business have no idea how to do that. So our little business, that's what we do. We help people understand their data. We help them understand how to make that data work in algorithms so they can use them in the real world. Um, and it's been fantastic for us. Yeah. It's, it's, we call ourselves the plumbers of the world of artificial intelligence. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's, it's definitely been um, a, a roller coaster. Um, obviously, the, the the world is going through a very unfortunate and challenging period. Um, but when, whenever there are challenges and obstacles, um, I guess there are opportunities. So, from a digital perspective, you you kind of expect digital to um, have have shone through. But again, because every, the world is so connected, and and as our marketing and communication channels, um, digital has in some way. Um, been, been affected by, I guess, lack of spend in print, um, declining revenues going into out of home, TV, etc. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of pricing challenges are, are, are ultimately uh, a lot of agencies are, are, are still paying rent, um, even though work from home is enabled. Um, yeah, there are certain costs that are, are, are kind of unavoidable. But I think what's, what, what's quite interesting too is the, the frequency of change of forecasting really kind of <laughs> understand a, um, a, a forecast is very difficult from a marketing director's perspective, but also on the agency side where you have a portfolio of clients across different verticals. Um, I guess that, that kind of forecasting becomes as critical, but also as difficult uh, because you're looking at multiple verticals and, and, and a lot of changes. And especially in you know our case, we, we do have quite a few global brands which are taking directive from decisions made in kind of North American headquarters. So the recent kind of Facebook boycott um, just again add, added another dimension to that um, constantly shifting forecasting and um, tr trying to figure out what's happening. But ultimately, um, the digital is really proving itself um, as a sustainable high growth uh, channel and area. Ashneel? So Audrey, um, it's funny that you say that. I think while it's a trying time for us, I actually think it's quite an exciting time. And, and why I say that is that it's, it's not often that we get to reinvent ourselves um, within a brand and agency perspective. And what's exciting about this time is now digital's at the forefront, right? Um, it's something we've been trying to push for the longest time uh, to have digital as a priority for brand. But given the consumption of our audience in South Africa, digital is actually at the forefront. And what's exciting about this journey is that um, agencies and brands have been pushing themselves in the space. Um, and it becomes an easy conversation to have digital lead um, a lot of the marketing activities. Um, and that's why I'm particularly excited because a lot of the ventures um, and the topics we've discussed over the years um, and the agendas that we've been pushing as an industry is actually coming into light uh, from e-commerce 
too smart buying, too building out performance teams. It's actually the center of growth. And this has been an exciting year. Um, one, because we could work in an agile way um, and become smarter with the way we interact as a team um, and as an agency. And secondly, we've been getting easier yeses within a brand organization to prove the worth of digital because it is one of the channels um, or it is one of the solutions that we can try and test more given um, the situation that we're currently in. Yeah, look, I mean, the content conversation is is another interesting one. And I think, you know, content is a direct result of creative. And, you know, you know we mentioned creative earlier and we had a, a long conversation you know, sort of offline on that as well. Um, and I think the, the reality is, is that uh, each social media platform or channel is, is, is different and unique to, to what it is, Facebook, to Instagram, to YouTube, to Twitter, to whatever. And I think, um, you know, with these multiple channels and them all being very unique, the content developed for them needs to be tailored to suit. Um, and that could take the shape in, in many different uh, forms where, you know, I know, I know people are using Instagram as an e-commerce platform, but it is a very visual platform. Less so, I would say, Facebook, you know, whereas Twitter, a little bit more information. So are we designing and developing content to fit the platform? Um, people are consuming this media on, on mobile phones. So is, you know, are we taking our TVC and making it mobile phone ready so that you, know, you can consume it in a way in terms of how you navigate, how you scroll? Um, we listen with sound off most of the time. Are we, is, the, is the content being created with sound off in mind? Um, and I mean, there's, there's loads of stats coming out about that, you know, sound off is pretty much how people consume media on, on, in, in social platforms on their mobile phones. So, again, you need to frame it in that way. Like, so what is our objective? Where's the, where's the content going to live? What content do we need? What creative do we need? How do we sort of bring it all together? And I don't think we're thinking about it all the way through and rather just, oh, social media, here's a post, off we go, media, see what you can do with it, and we'll run for three months with one piece of creative, you know, and, and, and we're not, no one's a miracle worker, but we need to work together, you know, creative refreshes, plan for mobile, those sorts of things, and, you know, that'll help us, like, manage it a little bit better. So I think you're missing a key ingredient there, and that's data. Correct. If it's data-led. Yes content becomes more contextually relevant to yep. your audience. Yes, yes. So um, the three types of deals that we deal with in, in programmatic private marketplaces, the first one is, is private auctions. So essentially this is still an auction that you're competing with other buyers. It's an invitation only type of approach and then you still have to um, bid and try and win those impressions. And there is a lot of risk involved with that because obviously you now don't know exactly how much you're going to end up paying for those impressions and if it's even worth that price and value. So I don't think it's very popular in South Africa, the, the private auction approach. Um, so we see a lot more um, a lot more buyers opting for what's called preferred deals or non-guaranteed deals. So this is a one-to-one -one deal with one buyer and one seller at a fixed negotiated rate. And then what the seller will do is they'll actually filter that deal to be um, exactly to the requirements of what the buyer is looking to run against. So if it's you know high viewability, or if it's a certain audience or a certain platform, then the seller will refine that and make it uh, available as sort of like an open pipe. And then it's paid at a sort of like a fixed rate. 
But the things to remember about non-guarantee is um, because you're not actually reserving those impressions, if the seller has um, a, re a reservation by, so somebody who's actually booked out that uh, impressions, then they won't get that, um, they won't get their chance to serve the ad. And then the third type is programmatic guaranteed. So this is essentially um, like the old insertion order um, booked media way of buying. Um, instead of using like an IO with a signed deal and paperwork and all of that, you have everything done through the programmatic channels. So then you actually book out and reserve those impressions over the time period. So Yaish, in closing, what advice would you give to um, brands out there, but also to startups um, in terms of how they can um, do things right or what they should consider in terms of this um, journey that they're embarking on? Um, so I guess two things. Um, the one, uh, I mean, there's the uh, that famous quote from Sun Tzu from the Art of War that said, "Know your enemy." Um, so my my uh, my current uh, variation of that actually is to know your client, um, and that's that's really really important. So rather than taking the internal systems or the internal business structures and complications that you have, and trying to apply it to your clients, understand them first, understand who you're speaking to, understand your product, understand on the ground what people are looking for go through the life walk in your shoes actually understand exactly what your client wants and build your digital model or your digital business accordingly. don't do it the other way around don't try and take something and almost shoehorn it into a consumer model that is digital and hoping that it will stick someone asked me second someone asked me the other day you know, I, i'm looking to create and build uh, what he calls a side hustle which uh, you know it's, it's <laughs> quite a quite a strange thing and i you know you ask me you know what, what do i need to do and again, this, this advice, I guess, is for, for startup as well. To build, yeah, once it's successful with startup, but to build a startup that has legs, you need two things. The one is you need proper, proper motivation. And uh, that can be monetary in certain cases, or it can be a person. In my case, it was definitely personal. The second thing that you need is the passion for what you do. And in my case, my passion is digital. So I was able to take my personal motivation, actually apply my passion to it, and that's how it gets so very, very importantly, if you have the desire to build a startup, be sure that you have those two things, the correct motivation and of course the passion for what you do. Those two things combined. Again, if you don't make it a success, at least you'll enjoy the journey, you'll enjoy what you're doing. That's obviously most, most important. Uh, to ensure that you actually have a business that has the legs to grow, to become a lot more prevalent in the market. So those are my two pieces of motivation. Ensure you have the right pieces or the right motivation and ensure that you have a passion for what you do. Thanks, Yaish. I love that piece of advice. As a digital person myself, I we have the passion and the passion that drives and fuels all of this energy to do more and look at digital in a completely new lens. Guten Morgen, Andreas. Guten Morgen. Wie geht's dir? Mir geht es sehr gut. Vielen Dank. Good Dank ecosystem is in a state of disruption i mean COVID 19 has just been the tipping point um you have worked within different verticals globally what changes have you seen happening within marketing this year well the, the changes are huge um there's such an acceleration of the relevance of digital in a lot of industries e-commerce I mean, we, we've seen numbers in e-commerce that we would have expected by 2025 and that happening within three months in the early phase of COVID. 
So people are just due to their locked-in situation and being um, well, just not not able of, of accessing shops for weeks and so on. Um, so this is what has accelerated the overall e-commerce business and revenues heavily. And this is then not, not only for e-commerce companies relevant, but it has shown to all brands that there is significance in this um, digital industry, I would call it, because um, just automobile, take it as an example, from many of those clients have said in the past, well, <clears throat> we, we will never sell digital. Um, why would we bother and still spend more than 80% of their budgets in the offline world uh, and not really embracing all the digital possibilities? And now this has accelerated and, and Tesla was very early in kind of selling digital cars digitally. But um, this is now what uh, has increased the importance to all kind of also consumer product companies and then many more to also be relevant in the digital space with their brands, uh, meaning online. And, and this is kind of just has speeded up so intensely over the last few months that um, yeah, it's, it's top of mind everywhere. Yeah, and, and, and that's, and I've said that now, um, I think a couple of times, but for me, and then this is what really stands out and what I see on a day-to-day -day basis, it's a cultural thing. And culture comes just from the people, from the vision they have, um, and the way and the, also the freedom they act within. So this is where we need to make a change for the next years, let's say, but the sooner the better. But uh, it's this change in behavior and ways of working, being much more dynamic, much more, we, we love to call it agile, but actually it's a very dynamic, cross-functional test and learn approach that is, that is getting things working. Um, much better than just relying on old behavior. And this is where you, where also people and organizations need to change their mind. Be much more open for new things to come. Embrace the technology, use the data, learn from it, and by that kind of further evolve. I think we all find our place somewhere in life. We're not sure where though. Yes, and I think sometimes some not about the final place as, as much as it is about the journey to get there. Huh? Absolutely. So Jan, let's get down to the topic today. And um, having spoken to Andreas around um, marketing and transformation in the digital age, today I just want to delve more around the role of marketing within organizations. You and I briefly chatted about this, but what is your perspective on where marketing is going to or what's going on? What are some of the challenges that CMOs are being faced with currently? Yeah, so I think um, I, the first thing to acknowledge is that actually digital marketing isn't just sort of a bit of a change in tools and in flavor for the marketing function, but rather it is the advent of something fundamentally new. And I do think once you, you take that thought, you realize that actually that has lots of implications, um, uh, certainly profound implications for the role of marketing within the organization. Um, the the, the skill set and the, the things that marketing must do. Um, but then sometimes in some cases, it actually has such profound impacts even on all the other functions um, in a company, right? So digital marketing is really um, 
it, it starts from a very different point than traditional marketing. M much of traditional marketing was a very outbound activity. Um, it was about being creative. It was about putting things out there and seeing what worked, what, what kind of messages you could get out there that, for example, would increase sales of your company. Um, and, uh, but often also um, you know, challenged by the fact that it's not so easy to tie back the effects of marketing to the activity, to traditional marketing, right? You put on a TV ad, maybe you sell more, maybe you don't. Um, it's not so clear. Hopefully it did something for your brand, but measuring brand is also not the easiest thing in the world. Digital marketing is a completely different beast because it happens in, in millions of small events, right? It is um, very much about doing something, putting something in front of a single individual user often, and then seeing are they coming into your sales funnel somehow? Where are they coming in? Um, and then are you able to actually move them down the funnel from awareness to consideration to trial to purchase to repeat purchase all the way? And all these things in principle, in, in, a, in a truly um, mature digital marketing organization, they're measurable. And I think this is one of the key things is the marketing function goes from something where you do good things and hope that good things happen to something where you do lots of small things. You always measure what happens. And A, you have proof to the organization now that what would the effect of that spend of that activity actually was. But even more importantly, you can now change things, test things, um, refine things to increase the effect of what you're doing in marketing. So you're going from something that is a very creative function to something that is actually a much more, call it scientific, um, quantitative function. I think that's one important thing to realize about the marketing. This is Casey here. So social display is, is really just the authentic recreation of social media content in standard ad units. Uh, so it's the idea of when uh, instead of encountering an ad unit, the user encounters something that feels a lot more like uh, an authentic social media experience like they might encounter on Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest or LinkedIn or Twitter. There, there's a lot, of, a lot of different platforms that brands are creating great content on. And we're just really seeing that, uh, especially over the past five years or so, banner ads have become more of an afterthought for creative teams uh, and teams at brands where their social media content is really at, at the forefront of, of driving relationships and expressing brand identity. Uh, so we're just finding that people are, are much more drawn to this high quality content that brands are creating in social environments. Um, we look at what they're doing with influencers and hashtags and even new things like challenges coming up. Uh, uh, brands are always innovating in, on the social side of things where banner ads haven't really seen too much innovation in the past 10 years, despite all the innovation in, in programmatic, where the uh, obviously like auction systems and private marketplaces and measurement and targeting capabilities have all improved a ton. A lot of the user their ads that we're seeing uh, in the market are, are ads that could have been running uh, 10 years ago, where the experiences on social are definitely uh, innovating at a faster pace and, and much more user friendly. Uh, so we, we're just seeing that by putting social experiences in traditional banner ad units, uh, that, that we're driving much better performance and engagement from, from users, and uh, there's a lot of efficiencies for the brands as well. Uh, I think the, the reality is that social media and paid media have been traditionally thought of as two different worlds, uh, different teams, different budgets, uh, and, and different approaches to engaging users. Where we think social is really shines is in terms of authenticity. And when we started Spaceback, we actually, um, you know, I, I had been working a, a lot of different jobs in the industry, 
that were you know, more, more on the programmatic infrastructure. And I wanted to take a step back and, and look at really how do we improve the user experience and, and less, less how do we make things better for the buyer or the seller. Like, you know, I think the user is one of the most important parts of the value exchange that is often forgotten when we think about um, you know, opportunities and, and efficiencies and how do, we, how do we make the whole value exchange work better. Um, I feel like the user has been kind of left behind or left out of the equation sometimes. So we really started with the user experience and how do we make this as, as authentic as possible for, for the user. Um, and we think that because it, it feels like an authentic social experience, that is why it works so well in, in display environments. Tell us about the day you and Vincent went for a bride early in 2016. What happened? <laughs> okay, so, so um, we, we were at a bride. And uh, we, it was a Saturday afternoon and we had already drank a few beers, so we couldn't drive. And uh, uh, we, it was just the first few kind of months of Uber being uh, uh, launched in South Africa. So um, we were like, why can't I call, uh, you know, why can't I uh, uh, open an app and get drinks delivered to my doorstep the very same way I would call an Uber. And, uh, and, and, and to be honest, I guess that that was the kind, kind of a, a light bulb moment in a journey that started probably about six months before that, where myself and, and Vince uh, we were both working at Unilever and a bit frustrated by by corporate at that stage. We just wanted to we just wanted to start our own business, and uh, we just wanted to launch an app. And I think on that day we kind of connected multiple pieces of this idea and. Uh, and there was uh, that bottle was born. To quote Dr. Seuss, don't cry because it is over. Smile because it happened. Be lekker, South Africa, and see you in the new year.